Welcome to episode 13 of The Scholar's Attic. We are back in the saddle with modernity. By the time you listen to this, we will have officially started the school year in person, Lord willing, unless something last minute just drops from the sky. Um, I will go ahead and remind everyone here that the idea is that Lighthouse will remain open all year unless uh, we hit one of our triggers that closes the school outright. But the idea is to stay open and allow families and individuals to individually quarantine. And that means that no matter whether you are doing school at home or whether you're able to plug into classes on campus, that your education happens as seamlessly as possible this year. The quarantine back in the spring of 2020 taught us all a lot about distance learning, but also about the kind of things we can do via technology that allows us to uh, pick up the pace and to carry on with normalcy as much as possible. So that is what we are doing here. Some of the episodes from here on out will be recorded in advance. This is one of them. Some of them will be recorded during the classes themselves. And there may be some glitching along the way. Some of the in-class uh, discussions and lectures in particular may not be as polished as what I can do by myself at home, but we're going to do the best we can and make the best of it. So if at any point in this lecture or any of those that follow, if you hear something that just, you're not sure if it meant to cut off there or you weren't sure of my wording or just whatever, you have a question about one of the episodes, just shoot me an email, shoot me a text, we'll get it sorted. So what we are doing now then here at the beginning of school is we are talking about worldviews and we are locking and loading with some pretty hard hitting theology and philosophy here in the first week because we need to not only look at the underlying worldviews that make up the atmosphere that we live in now, but we also have a real need to look at the core theological tenets that we as Christians stand on and why those two viewpoints, worldviews, are so radically different from one another. Now, Lighthouse is non-denominational in its construction. We are Christian by intent. This is very deliberate. We are a Christian school, but we do not have anything in our tenants that say that all of our students have to attend a Baptist church, or all of them have to attend a Presbyterian church. Uh, when people ask, when they are uh, looking into our church, uh, excuse me, there we go, looking into our school and uh, are asking about church affiliations, uh, here's what we tell them in a nutshell. We stand on the Nicene Creed. Okay, we stand on scripture, but if you want a condensed account of what we as Lighthouse uphold here in our teachings and the humanities, it's, it's front and center. This is the lens through which we filter everything else. The Nicene Creed is an excellent condensed version of what we stand on. Those are what you might call the non-negotiables. If you don't know what I mean by the Nicene Creed, I would 
recommend looking it up. It is very short. It's about as long as the Gettysburg Address, maybe not even that long, but it, it pulls together the core tenets of Christian beliefs. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered unto Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. And it, it goes on for a few more lines from there. There are a couple of translations. It was originally written in Latin. So you might find a version that gives slightly different wording that, than what I just rattled off to you. But those are the non-negotiables. Now, if my church sprinkles in baptism and yours does immersion, if the, the way they take up the offering looks different, like these are all things that we can agree to disagree on. But as far as where our beginning point is as Christians and what we are doing here at the beginning of school, here in these initial lectures, these initial uh, group studies that we are doing, is that we are mapping out the non-negotiable core ideas that um, we as Christians stand on that by their very nature set our world of view, worldview apart from everyone else. Now, the problem with studying modernity while it is still unfolding around us is that it is so familiar. The lies and the truth are tangled together sometimes in ways where it just seems impossible to pick it apart, to separate the good from the bad, the truth from the lies. Uh, one thing that you will hear me say over and over again is that modernity's great tragedy is that it is a truth wrapped inside a lie. And that truth distortion shows up in a million different places throughout our culture, the, the books we read, the television shows, the movies that we ingest, the music that we listen to, the conversations that you have with complete strangers while standing in line somewhere. Uh, it's just everywhere. About 10 years ago, just as one of many, many examples I could give, I went to a basically it was a glorified yard sale. One of the local churches, uh, one of the local Baptist churches, uh, was having a, a kind of a yard sale uh, where they were just cleaning out closets. They were cleaning out just all kinds of things. And there was a table of books. And of course, you know me, I'm immediately drawn to books. I always want to see what's up for grabs. This is probably one of about three book sales that I've been to in my life where I did not purchase a single book. Didn't even take advantage of the free ones that they had laid out. Because once I started going through the titles, I ended up writing down the titles because it just struck me how jarring these titles were in contrast with the declared mission statement of this church. Here are just some of the titles that I wrote down. I actually had a couple of index cards on me that day. So here are the ones that I found. Do-it-yourself relationship mender. Somebody loves you. Finding the love of your life. Help teach children Sunday school. Principle-centered leadership. The purpose-driven life. 
How to Win Friends and Influence People. What Should I Do With My Life? Behavior Therapy Techniques. Angel Walk. Reality Therapy. Psychotherapy with Children. How to Deal. Dictionary of Psychology. And my personal favorite, Empowerment Takes More Than a Minute. Now, with that kind of lineup of titles, the only one that I was familiar with and that I purpose personally know has some solid theology behind it is The Purpose Driven Life. However, the vast majority of those other titles all centered around psychology, behavior therapy, um, you know, how to deal. I mean, that title is just, it, it, it makes no bones about anything. It's just, I'm here to teach you how to deal with life, with stress, with whatever. And I found myself just walking around the table, and, and there were a lot more books than this. This is just a sampling. These are the ones that just really stood out above and beyond the others. And I found myself thinking, how is it that from a church office, and I know that there are a lot of churches that uh, keep counselors on staff, you know, Christian counselors, uh, Christian psychologists even, but how is it that the psychology texts outweigh anything Christian driven in a book sale from a church? And as I've talked to other people over the years and I found that there's just a lot of humanism, a lot of human centered thought that has been pulled into the church. I mean, I've noticed it. I, if you're like me, I've sat under uh, the occasional sermon now and then where a, a little flag just sort of goes up in the back of my head and I go, wait, what? What did they just say? And But the moment's gone. Um, but I find myself just with a sort of off-tilted feeling of, okay, I'm hearing God's word, but that little thing that just glanced through the sermon, that wasn't very biblical or it at least at least leaves me with a question mark where I think hmm I, I really need to sit down and think about this one research the full quote because something about this just just doesn't jive and if your filters are in place then those just doesn't jive kind of moments happen all the time my responsibility as your modernity teacher this year is to help you put those filters in place so that whatever situation you walk into, whether you're taking it off a screen, through a conversation, through the printed word, the news, whatever, that you can catch those little zingers, those, those little worldview clinchers that just don't belong there. They don't belong wrapped up in the truth. And if you can catch them as they zip through your brain, as they zip through whatever media that you are taking in at the moment, you will be better off for it. One of the things that most of the current generation, and I'm not talking just about millennials here, I'm talking about all living, breathing people walking around on planet Earth right now, that kind of broad sense of a generation. What most of this generation has lost is critical thinking. 
the ability to take what you've been told and to sort through it and go, okay, where's the proof in the pudding? Is this true? And how do I know it's true? Or is this false? How do I know it's false? Now, as Christians, we've got an automatic beginning point. Scripture is absolute truth. It is breathed by God. It is the conviction upon which we stand. And it is the titanium backbone of everything we think, say, or do. Or it ought to be that titanium backbone at the center of everything we think, say, or do. But here in modernity, what I'm going to do is I'm going to build off of this wonderful biblical teaching that I know you're getting in your churches, uh, in your Bible studies, in family devotionals, in your personal uh, devotion time that hopefully all of you uh, have every day. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to build off of that. So I'm going to work on the understanding that you're already solid on the basic tenets of Christianity. And I'm also working in this year in particular, because this is a smaller year, uh, COVID has just restructured so many people's finances that our numbers are much smaller than what we had last year. But in the grand scheme of things, this is probably one of the main reasons why Lighthouse is able to stay open, because we can properly social distance in the middle of this ongoing pandemic. But what I am also working off of this year is the fact that with this being a smaller uh, a class of students, the vast majority of you are return students. So I know that you have had foundations. You have had the core theology class that we teach our seventh and eighth graders. And even if you came into humanities after that point, uh, I'm talking to people who have had antiquities, Christendom, and American experience. So you've gotten some of this other stuff from other directions. So uh, the, the first lecture that we do uh, this year uh, that you will probably have already sat through by the time you listen to this is a recap of those core theology points that, uh, that you get in your biblical training at church and at home that we give in the foundations class that we have talked about along the way in other humanities classes. And that's our springboard. That is our beginning point because everything that follows from this point on is going to be our efforts to build up this picture between the city of God and the city of man. Those of you who have had Christendom know exactly where I got that from. So, but this is the dynamic, right? We have the city of God, the church triumphant, the idea that, uh, that God is already the victor, that the enemy is already defeated, and that we are living out the reality of biblical truth so that the world may know what has already been declared and what has already been won. And then there is the city of man that says, no, I want to do what I want to do when I want it, how I want it, and don't you dare get in my way. Usually not put that nicely. So this is what we're going to do, and this is what we're going to start with today. We're going to revisit a couple of things from the tail end of the Middle Ages. I just hit a couple of high points, low points, 
just some bullet points <laughs> um, at, at here as we transition into the modern world and our real study of the timeline will begin with the French Revolution. So let's dig in. Now, if you are a current student, this is where you pull out the worksheet that accompanies this lecture that you are filling out for homework, okay? And we are going to start by just establishing up front a, a couple of basic parameters, a couple of just you know, black and white facts that make up the grid, the infrastructure of how we are studying this year and the, the order and the nature of what we're studying this year. So the first thing that we have to acknowledge up front is that there is more than one way to view history. There is the pagan way of viewing history. This is the, the territory of antiquities, which if you take humanities next school year, that will be the next humanities class. We cycle around to the beginning. Uh, the pagan view of history is that it's an endlessly repeating cycle of events. So think reincarnation. It just, it, you, you die, you get reborn, you get recycled into the next um, generation, the next set of events. And there's this inevitable eventuality that cannot be avoided. And resistance against it is futile. Okay, so all of that that I just said, history is an endless repeating cycle of events with an inevitable eventuality that cannot be avoided and against which resistance is futile. This is the circle of life mentality. And aside from that wonderful opening song of The Lion King, I cannot think of a place, time, or story where the circle of life, like if that is the sole basis of your worldview, it, it's not a very hopeful one. It's not going to give you peace. It's not going to give you comfort. It's not going to give you solid answers uh, about death or life or why bad things happen to good people or our purpose for being here on earth. Because the, the bottom line is that we're just part of this big spiral and the best we can do is just keep up with our part of the spiral and hope our next trip around the sun just goes better. The second view of history are the retractists. This is R-E-T-R-A-C-T-I-S-T-S. -S. Retractists, sometimes referred to as revisionist history. Uh, so this view would say that history is a highly fictionalized account of past events written by those in power and therefore is inaccurate and unreliable. We are living in the middle of a year in particular. Definitely this has been around for a while, but this year in particular, this revisionist history, retractist history, is really front and center of a lot of arguments right now. Um, if you've ever heard of the 1619 Project, very noble in its in original intent, I think, in that it wants to give a more comprehensive view of history by making sure that slavery and those who were enslaved and people who rose above slavery 
are featured in their proper place, giving credit where credit is due, in American history. But if you look at the curriculum, then you'll notice that there are some glaring omissions from that lineup, including Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King Jr., and the civil rights era. It's basically like almost a passing footnote in the curriculum. Massive revisionist history, but it has been put out in response to this idea that the current history textbooks are false, are largely false, because they were written by those who were never enslaved or who had very um, white elitist mentality behind it. So those are your retractors. History, at least most of what we have in books, is fictional. The evolutionists, this is item number three. This should not surprise you either that it is on the list. History is a, rec a record of how man moved from inferior ways and ideas to superior ways and ideas. And this can be in the most literal sense of we have evolved from amoeba to fish to chickens to monkeys to people. Uh, crudely put, but there's, there's that version of evolution, the very literal sense of evolution. But then there's also the evolutionism that you get in television and movies. X-Men uh, really hammers on this. The whole X-Men franchise about man taking that next step in his evolution and that these mutants are not monsters to be feared, but that this is the future of mankind, that we are constantly evolving into people who are more remarkable, wiser, more sentient, um, can use more of their brain, have more access to their inherent abilities than the generations before. Star Trek is another franchise that really works with this idea of man is constantly evolving. Footnote, see 60% of whatever John Luke Picard says in that series. And then to counteract or counterbalance all of that, we have the fourth view of history, and this is the theologian's view of history, Christian theologians, I should specify. These people would say that history is the impress of God, a living narrative of how he reveals himself in the world and in world events. Um, so what happens if you do not accept this idea that is that history is the living scroll of recorded, um, the recorded narrative of God, of how he works in people and through people and through circumstances, not because we are perfect, but in spite of our failings. Ignoring that reality creates almost what you would call a cultural amnesia. There's a really interesting quote by a man named John H.Y. Briggs, who said the following, just as a loss of memory in an individual is a psychiatric defect calling for medical treatment, so too any community which has no social memory is suffering from an illness. In other words, if we forget who we are and why we are here, and who our ultimate authority is, that ultimate standard 
of right and wrong that cannot be moved, then as a an, an individual, as a community, as a culture, we radically lose our way. We are basically suffering from cultural amnesia because we do not know who or whose we are. Now, if those adhering to a Christian theology in their view of history is becoming the minority, which it would appear, at least from just a passing glance at news and social media, that it is, then where does that take us? Well, it sets up a time period, the time period we call modernity, that is characterized by three very distinctive characteristics. This would be the next section on your worksheet. The first characteristic that creates this atmosphere in which we live is rebellion. Modern man is in revolt against God, family, church, and any idea of biblical government. So we are in rebellion against that. I think that's pretty clear just from looking around at, well, just pick a slice of life. Just, it, it's, it's there. Um, this is the idea of I want what I want when I want it. Don't get in my way. And I'm probably shooting you a bird while I'm telling you that. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. This is actually at the core of all sin. The reason we sin is because on some critical point, we come to the point of decision making and we go, no, I'd rather do this thing over here. And that can have a million different faces. Um, again, if you were in class when we talked about that uh, sin flow chart and, and the, the way that sin can, uh, can cycle through individual personalities and, and individual uh, uh, kinds of affection and, and the, just the way that it becomes this, this unending cycle of hurt, then you know, it, you know what I'm talking about. You've already been given a lot of fodder there of, of um, to, to play with in terms of, well, what does this look like at street level in real life? Well, um, it, it looks like us. We are sinners. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. There are no exceptions except for the, uh, the person, the perfect person of Jesus Christ. So number one is rebellion. Number two, fragmentation. So that's the word fragment with the suffix A-T-I-O-N on it. Uh, so basically, once we stop believing that all truth is found in God, our lives are disrupted. And we become fragmented by this belief that one aspect of life does not affect the other. Now, you hear people say, especially students, will say along the way, why do I need to know algebra? I'm not going to teach math. I'm not going to be an engineer or an architect. Believe me, if you want to pay your bills on time and you want to buy groceries and balance your personal budget for how you run a household, you need to know at least the basics of algebra. Uh, one of the things about education over the last 60 to 70 years is that we have somehow managed to convince students and parents that each 
class, each topic is somehow separate from all of the others. This is one thing that makes Lighthouse stand out from the rest because we deliberately work to integrate all of those subject areas in how we teach. Uh, your math teachers are going to talk about the, the lives and passions of the great mathematicians, many of whom were strong Christians and even staunch theologians, apologists, who are constantly defending the Christian faith. You know, in humanities, we're talking about science. We're, we're talking about math. We're talking about how all of these things work together to create a particular circumstance or that is at the background of some particular book. It's all connected. But once you remove God from the picture, you don't have that connecting line. You just have lots of little dots, lots of little isolated ideas, and you can really specialize in one piece over here, but you can go through your entire life and not know that it's really meant to be one cog in a larger machine, okay? So that's the education example, but fragmentation goes way beyond this. Um, nowadays, another example of this um, is uh, you hear people say, well, I'm living out my truth. I'm doing what's good for me. You do you, you let me do me. And the idea there is that there are two totally different standards of right and wrong and that you follow your idea of right and wrong and I will follow my idea of right and wrong and we will both achieve happiness. We will both achieve nirvana. Um, we will both achieve whatever it is that we want out of life. So don't tell me that I'm doing it wrong because my truth is not the same thing as your truth. That is part of the fragmentation. So we go through life, and this is the ABC part there under fragmentation, that A, our personal life has nothing to do with how we work, how we do our job. B, we believe in the lie that our personal belief in God has no bearing on our dress, our music, our entertainment, or our, what friends we choose, okay? And then we think part C, that our dress and music and movies and books don't affect our relationship with God. Three big lies there that really play into this fragmentation that we see in our culture today. And then number three, purposelessness. Purposelessness, all one word. And basically what we're saying with this is that as a whole, modern society lacks meaning and purpose. During Christendom, Mrs. Earle talks about the way people viewed the building of the great cathedrals. They were planned out and they were built over hundreds of years, hundreds. I, depending on which cathedral uh, you're talking about, they took anywhere from 120 to almost 500 years to complete a given cathedral. You have to have the long view of history with God at the center to be able to plan something that you know that your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren, and about five more greats after that will never see to completion. 
that it will be several generations beyond your great, great, great grandchildren who will be able to walk into, you know, St. Paul's Cathedral, Notre Dame Cathedral, and just, you know, and enjoy worship in that cathedral as a finished product. I mean, you're never going to see it if you're starting it in the year, you know, 740 and it's not finished until 1215. That is a view on history that we just don't have anymore. Having that view gives you purpose. It means that even if I don't see this triumph in my lifetime, I don't see the completion of this project, even if I don't see this hope realized in my lifetime, I can live out my life, I can die in the hope that I am part of the winning side, that I am part of the great triumph that is going to come down through history and set things to rights. You remove that, you remove your purpose for being on planet Earth. And, and that's when your hope, your aspirations, your dreams, like they just all shrivel up and turn to dust pretty much as soon as you touch them. With all that being said, plus the hard-hitting theology lesson that we had on the first day of school, that is the springboard into the French Revolution. Okay, The French Revolution is the first major historical event that we will study this year. This is the lead-up to it. Uh, next time that I give you uh, one of these recorded lectures to do for homework, we will look at some of the other ideas and historical events that set the stage for the French Revolution. And hopefully I'll uh, make uh, pretty good strides in describing at least the first half of the French Revolution to you. It will probably be a two-part podcast. Uh, the next couple of classes that we have in person will focus on the Enlightenment which is a significant time period that happens right before the French Revolution. In fact, the very last philosophers who are considered to be part of this true enlightenment phase die almost on the eve of the French Revolution. And fun fact, most of these enlightenment philosophers that we will study are themselves French, which tells you right there why the kind of explosion that we see in the French Revolution happened in France and not somewhere else. But that is for another time. So uh, thank you for hanging in there. Uh, listen to this again, pause and repeat as many times as you need in order to fill out your uh, worksheet for homework. And we will pick it up next time.